millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, how many of you believe in a second chance? How many of you would want a second chance for yourself if you ever messed up? These are basic questions that in one respect elements of society appear reluctant to face up to. In particular, I'm talking about a second chance for somebody who has a criminal conviction and particularly if that person spent time in prison. Once a person who is convicted and imprisoned has served their sentence, that's supposed to be the end of it, the debt paid to society and a clean slate applied. That's the theory. In practice, ex-prisoners and people with convictions who haven't been to prison face many barriers, not least in the area of employment. New research has shown that employers are generally receptive to taking on ex-prisoners, but there are a whole range of caveats to that. So what is it like to come out and try to start anew? And what more can be done to make this easier? And, not least, allow ex-prisoners the opportunity to put their skills and knowledge to good use, as is the case with every other section of society. Also, when does a conviction legally become spent? And by spent, I, I mean that a person need no longer reference it in a legal or employment setting. And we have to ask, is that system fair as it currently stands? Joining me to look at some of these issues is Damien Quinn. Damien has spent time in prison and now runs an organisation, Spera Nua, which helps ex-prisoners getting back on their feet. And Saoirse Brady, who's Executive Director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust. You're both very welcome. And Damien, I'll come to you first. Damien, if you could, would you just give us a bit of your background and, and how you ended up in trouble yourself? Uh, hi, Michael, and thanks for having us on. Um, I suppose uh, my background, like I would have... Um, I had a fairly good childhood, uh, but what happened was we had a, a family breakdown and we relocated from the UK to Ireland and um, the whole family unit broke down. I suppose we found ourselves living alone at the age of about 15 and 14, myself and a, a younger brother of mine. And um, we did what we had to do to survive, you know, um, so I got attracted to the life of drugs and that type of thing and started using them, dabbling in them, selling them and and did everything else that went along with that for a number of years. Up until the age of about maybe 23 when I kind of felt like I wanted something else. Um, work had dried up, um, life wasn't great. Um, I I suppose... You know, there was very little opportunity at the time because there was a lot of skilled people had come into the country and I had no qualifications and I couldn't really compete. So um, I went back to a probation project and done my junior cert at the age of about 23, 24. But um, at that time I was still living the life and unfortunately that I wasted that opportunity and I got caught. I got caught with a, a kilo of cannabis and uh, got myself into a few different fights and that type of thing. And... Uh, then I didn't, I lost all my friends, I lost my house, I lost the 
respect of people around the town that I liked. They didn't like me anymore. Um, entered into homelessness, deeper addiction, and then I was before the courts. Um, so to be honest, like um, I actually welcomed getting in off the streets, away from my mangled mess of a life. Um, and I had a plan going in there because I knew there was a, a good education unit in there. So I rationalized that I would make the very best out of a very bad situation. And I did just that. And Damien, before we come to your, your experience after you were released, I think you spent about two years in prison. But before we come to that, within prison, you know, in theory, again, it's supposed to be re- a rehabilitative uh, environment. And part of that, of course, is education and that. How would you rate the opportunities that were given to people like yourself to try and turn things around within the prison setting? Well, I suppose like in prison, like um, at that time, you know, you would have to go and look for these opportunities, you know. Uh, if you, you don't know what you don't know. I did know that there was an education unit in there and I made inquiries and I got myself on the list and uh, there was work programs as well, computer workshops and that type of thing. And I suppose for the for the three years I was there, all I did was study, learn, and um, use, it, say, the computer workshops to con- continue that learning. Uh, because I quite naively believed that when I got out, when my sentence was over, that the punishment was over. Do you know? Um, and that's what I was working towards, being able to move on with my life uh, in a construct in a constructive way. But when I got out then, like, absolutely nobody was willing to give me a chance. Do you know, I, I, I remember I bought myself some smart clothes and smart shoes to go around looking for work. I'd be going the length and breadth of the train track now looking for work from Athlone to Galway and back up to Dublin. And the amount of rejection you'd be receiving, do you know, uh, when you get to that question about a bit of your past you can't change, you know. It was kind of, it was soul-destroying, to be honest. And um, it then, like, the what happened then was I started to regress after getting out and uh, found myself creeping back into old habits. Didn't get into any more trouble with the guards or anything, but I reverted to a default life that um, I always used to protect me and mine from poverty. And, and, and that was the drug life and unfortunately then I had really bad episodes with it I got really sick from them and uh, uh, got myself into a lot of trouble and had to leave the country again for a while and then I came back and started to recover and then accepted the fact that I was probably not going to be employed anywhere and came to terms with that to be honest. Okay and just in terms of looking for employment at that stage Damien um could you just give us a, a sense, like I presume, you know, for instance, I'm guessing some form of an interview scenario or something and you have a build up to that. What would have been going through your head and at what point in an application or interview would you have, and I'm just guessing here, that kind of sinking feeling or realisation of here we go again? Yeah, well, look, I suppose there'd be a lot of factory jobs in Galway, you know, Galway is the med tech centre of uh, the world, really, do you know, uh, but like a lot of these jobs would require vetting and where somebody with a background has a bad background, do you know, they're very unlikely to apply for that job because it simply just puts you off because you're going into like what I call a degradation ceremony, do you know, you're giving somebody that you don't even know the very worst things about yourself in a situation where you should be talking about your skills, attributes, what you bring 
you know, the, you get through the questions, you get through the dexterity tests or the aptitude tests, and then one last question before you go, do you have any convictions? And then if you say, yes, I do, um, then the conversation focuses around that, and it's usually the end of the road. Like, um, I did, like, I suppose, I did get uh, jobs. Obviously, I got jobs eventually, but these were jobs with people that didn't even interview me. Like, they were, it would have been cover work that became something more permanent. There was no interview process. Every single opportunity I've got since I left prison in 2009 was not because of what I what I know, it's because of who I know and who I got to know. And, you know, the couple of really, really open-minded employers that were willing to see me as the person that I am today rather than the person that I used to be. Yeah, and just on that element of it, Damien, as you say, it's people who you got to know and people who gave you a, a break, so to speak. But for for somebody who wouldn't be a, a, as resourced as yourself, perhaps somebody who mightn't have contacts or, 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 you know, an outgoing personality or whatever, what you're saying is, to a large extent, their progress is blocked at that point. Like, Yeah, and it's not just like employment, like, I suppose... There would be people I would have met along the way that would say only fools and horses work. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a given. Like, but like employment is not the end goal for everybody. Other people might want to go into education. Other people might have family care duties and all them types of things. But they all wanted to play a meaningful part in their family's lives. You know, they all wanted to give back and, you know, make amends for what might have happened. And very often, like uh, an opportunity along the way, is the very, the most important tool they need to make that happen. Do you know, and like when I think back to some of the people that I met in my time, you know, um, um, really, really smart, smart people that I was only, I was in prison this morning talking to the education unit about my experiences of our learning group. Like there would have been people very much like me that wanted to get as much as they could too. And so smart, and you know, and you'd read about them then in papers years after being dead or being right back to where they started. And I 100% believe that's due to the inability to tap into any meaningful opportunity. Right. And uh, just turning to you, Saoirse, Saoirse Brady from the, the Irish Penal Reform Trust. Um, the IPRT, you've, you've done some research, either a research study done recently into this issue. What kind of things were highlighted, Saoirse? So I suppose, yeah, thanks for having us on, Mick, but the IPRT would have commissioned out research to the University of Maynooth to look at um, employers' attitudes to hiring people with convictions. And it's the first kind of time in Ireland that there's published research on it. We know there has been some small-scale studies before, but they may not have been published. And I suppose what we heard from employers who took part, people with uh, lived experience of the criminal justice system as well, was that employers, for the most part, 9 out of 10, were in favour of considering hiring a person with a conviction. But what they're crying out for are the supports that are necessary to allow them to do that. They want the know-how. They want to know what the legal position is. They want to know what policies are in place, if there are templates for policies. And they want to know the kind of practical things to do. So they weren't as concerned with, um, you know, whether somebody was going to show up on time, whether they were going to be absent all the time. Those weren't the things that they were really kind of looking at. What they did look at was the type of offence that somebody might have um, committed. They wanted to know they were all about risk. Even when they were saying it wasn't about risk, 
there was an underlying current that it was really about risk and when they should disclose things as well. But I suppose from our point of view in IPRT, you know, you have to ask whether it's always relevant to ask if somebody has a conviction or not. Is it relevant to the job that they're applying for? And um, one of the big things coming out of the report, I suppose, is and Damien's touched on it there and Damien's experience, like uh, you've picked up on it there, Mick, you know, he is a very resourceful, resilient person. He, you know, knew what he wanted, knew, you know, knew the right people, knew how to get it and went for it and has, you know, excelled. But not everyone is like that. Not everyone should have to be like that to get on. What people want is they want a job, but they want a decent job. They want a career pathway, perhaps. Um, and that isn't always open to them. So this research as well found that even though um, 95% of employers recognised that employment is a way for people to turn their life around and to move forward, you know, 92% of them recognise that there are barriers in the way as well and want to know how they can address those barriers, really. So it, it was a really interesting piece of research, actually. Yeah, and I suppose one thing that would arise there, Saoirse, and this would be a perception issue, I'd suggest, is that that business of risk and, you know, you, I, I could well see a scenario where an employer might see somebody's an ex-prisoner and say, right, well, sure, you, you give someone a shot, a, a second shot, everybody's entitled to that. But the perception of risk that's there, is that to a certain extent down to the general perceptions of prisons and prisoners through, I suppose, the media in one way and, and other elements of society, that is, is somewhat misplaced and gives a, a, an impression that uh, is not appropriate or, 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 or deserving. Yeah, and, you know, that came up. We had a launch last week and Damien was there as well. And it did come up, you know, the role that the media play in this, you know, in terms of people trying to move on with their lives and it always being reported, um, you know, what their offence was, you know, why they were in prison in the first place or why they served a sentence. Um, and that isn't always helpful. And the other part of it is, you know, we live in Ireland in rural communities or in small towns. People might know that you have a history, but, you know, an employer bringing that up all the time or being aware of it, is, is that really necessary? You know, like if the offence is relevant to the job that somebody is doing, yes, there will be guard of vetting put in place, for example. And, you know, that's often when people have to disclose things. You know, many of the employers that were interviewed, and it was a small scale study, don't get me wrong, it wasn't hundreds and hundreds of people, but the people that did, that were interviewed for this or did take part in service said they didn't have policies in place themselves. So you don't know at even what point in the process you, you might be asked, do you have a conviction? It might be at the application process. It might be, or, you know, it might not be. And that might be why somebody went for the job in the first place. But then they're sitting in an interview and, you know, people talked about kind of their heart sinking when that question came up. Um, they suddenly had to disclose it or they might get through all that process. And then the guard of vetting piece comes and they're like, well, you know, is that going to be relevant or not? Um, and, you know, I think it's just one of those things where we really have to consider why it, it needs to be done. And the employers, when you talk about risk there, the employers were, you know, all of the employers that took part in the interview part of this research, none of them had policies in place. Um, and even though they said risk wasn't a, a 
particular concern for them, they did kind of raise issues around, well, what about GDPR, like in disclosure? And what about like, do other employees not have the right to know? Like we all have things that have happened in the past. Our co-workers don't always know about them. So again, unless it's relevant, I would really question whether it needs to be asked at all. Yeah, and the other element then to the whole thing, Saoirse, is people with convictions who would not have actually served a custodial sentence. And and, and uh, I mean, I see there w- within the research that was conducted there, for example, they quoted that the court service in 2023, 338,823 cases came before the district court in 2022, excuse me, out of those approximately 3,796, which is less than 1%, resulted in a custodial sentence. So you're talking now, and quite obviously all those other cases would necessarily have been criminal cases, but definitely a large proportion of them would. But you're talking about a scenario whereby you also have a large number of people who have a criminal conviction yet didn't serve a custodial sentence. And that automatically also becomes an issue immediately um, in employment prospects. Yeah, and those could be people who got a fine for a driving offence. They could be somebody who served uh, community service. Um, you know, so, you know, and I know, know we'll probably get on to it, but that idea of the spent conviction and what it is. So those us- usually relate to um, offences that took place that were tried in the district or circuit court. So public order offences, for example, driving offences, those kind of things. Um, and, but a person might still have to wait seven years for that to be spent so they don't no longer have to disclose it to a potential employer. And, you know, we're talking about employment here, but as Damien mentioned as well, this impacts on so many aspects of a person's life. You know, we hear from people all the time and we regularly get um, questions around spent convictions and what's happening with it. Have there been any changes to it? How Like how long... How will I know if my conviction is spent or not? Uh, you know, those are the kind of questions we get. But people trying to get insurance, um, you know, car insurance, home insurance, health insurance, all of those, the question might come up. People trying to coach their kids' football team. And, you know, again, guard of Etten applies where relevant, but, uh, you know, where you're working with children. But like if somebody has a conviction or a record, you know, around this, even if it mightn't be disclosed in the vetting process because they mightn't think it's relevant. Like, there's still that concern and fear there for people, do you know, that, that oh, somebody's going to see that I have a criminal conviction and, are you know, are they going to say that I can't take part in this anymore? So I think there is, you know, we really need to consider, first of all, who goes to prison for a particular um, offence, but also... What you know is the criminal justice system working? You know, in terms of how people are coming into contact with it in the first place. Yeah, and uh, f- raise the thing there for me myself. There, Saoirse, you mentioned about coaching kids' teams, and I've been through that and and, and the guard of vetting. And you make a very good point. I mean, somebody just purely just because Damien's here, say, for instance, with the type of of um, offence that Damien was involved in that somebody like that, uh, which has nothing to do with working with children, but that something like that could come against you in a scenario whereby you want to take part and contribute and volunteer in a situation like that. And yet you find that this comes up against you through the the vetting process. And it personally wouldn't seem to make much sense to me on any kind of a level, but that's the way the system operates at the moment. Yeah. 
And also with Gardevet and just the other point that did come up last week um, is that for any like any volunteer post or any kind of uh job opportunity that involves maybe vulnerable adults or children like you have to be vetted for each one so you have to go through this time and time again it's not just that you're guard of at once and okay you you know guard of vetting should apply regularly just in case but you know the fact that like at the same period in time you might be trying to volunteer with three different organizations and have to vet it separately for them you know that means that you have to disclose that again and again and again and that is something that puts a lot of pressure on people who are really trying to move on with their lives and leave all of this behind. It isn't really an incentive or encouraging for them to do that. Absolutely. And I've actually come, you're a very good point, actually, because I've come across that button soccer and GA and having to go and get the separate ones. And as you say, each yep. time when you have something like this, apart from anything else, the fact that the realisation you have to again and again disclose it. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Damien. Like getting employment, as as we've noticed, is a major issue in one sense and everything that arises there. But even after you've managed to get employment, is your past to that extent? Does it does it come up in other ways then in the workplace or are 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 in, in beyond the workplace as well? Yeah, well, look, I suppose um, um, it it doesn't go away like it, and uh, I suppose the act is there to protect children and vulnerable adults from anybody that has the capacity to endanger them. But if you said to somebody in the mainstream people in prison that they are now viewed as a risk to children and vulnerable adults, you know, they'd actually be quite horrified because many people are in prison because, like, I've met people in prison that were in prison for um, robbing food, for example, to feed themselves or robbing clothes to put on their children's back or for non-payment of the TV licence. You know what I mean? Like... They're just being punished because they're poor, uh, but like I suppose one of the one of the things that I came across, say for example, in the community setting, um, I was approached a number of years ago by a lovely man who's no longer with us. Um, he was a vice president of Community Games Ireland, and uh, we were having the discussion about me becoming the secretary for the county for Galway, and I've obviously like I have this whole desire to give back thing, and I said, look, I'd like to help out. And he said, well, so yeah, we'll get you on board now. He said, then we'll just do the guard of vetting and that'll be it kind of thing. And I just said, look, Tony, I'm going to have to stop you there. Like, um, and there is something from my past that is going to come up. And I just want you to know that so you don't look like a fool when, when you put me forward. So uh, he said, all right, OK, OK. And I told, I told him what it was, like he was fighting and get, uh, stuff. I, I gave him everything, like, you know. And I said, but it was of a time, like a number of years ago, um, and he just thought about it for a second and he said to me, well, what have you done since that time? Do you know, and nobody ever asked me in an interview situation, what have I done since that time? Like, And it was, uh, I didn't really know how to answer him because every time I got to that situation in an interview, it was always um, negative. 
but he wanted to tease out, you know, what I'd done right since that time. And he took everything and he put his neck on the line and it took three months now to get through the process. But uh, I got through the process and I became the county secretary and he just didn't give up like. And it was uh, it was uh, it was a lovely experience and he was a, a good man. Yeah, and as you said, that, that, a very good point again. Uh, as you said, in, in most instances, people want to concentrate on what you did that you ended up in prison. But in, I, I believe it's 2009 you and you you came out. And, and as you said, what about what I did since exactly? That's, that, that, that's the most relevant thing of all and, and, and not enough emphasis put in that. But also, like, I suppose the offence happened years before that. Like, the offence happened in, say, yeah. 2005. And prior to that, like, I suppose I'd done my time and I worked on myself during that time uh, quite hard now. I'd done, I'd done every, I took every opportunity that was going uh, with the belief that I'd, I'd be able to get out and move on, as I said earlier. Like, but um, that doesn't factor in, you know. They only um, look at you from the day you get out rather than, you know, everything that has changed since the time you were before the courts, you know, that is part of your decision's journey. You make a decision to engage with the services. You make a decision to get educated. You make a decision to train and reflect and learn and plan for something different, like, you know. So nobody that gets out of prison wants to go back in there. People, and people don't apply for jobs that they don't feel like they can't do anyways, you know. I certainly wasn't getting out and applying to NASA, you know. I was applying to different <laughs> jobs that I knew how to do, that I I knew I'd do standing on my head. But it was the same old story, like, you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I can well imagine if, 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 if I had to uh, discuss some of the most embarrassing things I did as a, as a teenager into my early 20s, every time I went for a job, I'd, I'd, I'd be a mess before getting to any interview, to be quite honest <laughs> with you. But yet, as you say, people who just happen to um, to end up with a conviction, that, that that's what they're subjected to. Saoirse, in that vein, talk to me about spent convictions, how that scenario sits at the moment and how it can be improved. I believe there's legislation that's in the pipeline, but it's been in the pipeline for a fair time. Yes, so the law changed in 2016. So it meant that if you um, had a conviction and, you know, you served one year prison sentence or a two year non-custodial sentence, like we discussed fines or community service, etc., it could become spent after seven years. Now, that applies mostly to um, convictions that happen in the district or circuit court. But if you've more than one uh, conviction, then... It can't become spent, um, you know, that that's that's part of the problem, unless they're the, for minor kind of public order offences or or things like that. But like, say, for example, you have a minor drug possession conviction, if you have motor and offences, unless, you know, you have two offences that were tried on the same day, then, you know, if you've done that more than once, then... You, they're never going to be, neither of them are going to become spent. And, you know, I think Damien makes some really relevant points there uh, that are really key to the new legislation that is proposed. So Senator Lynn Rowan would have um, proposed changes to the law in 2018. She put down a private member's bill. Um, it's passed through the Shannon. It fell with the last government. There was a programme for government commitment from this government to look at this issue of spent convictions. Um, you know, we're drawing to the close of the, this government. So we would like to see this done uh, this year. And there is cross-party support for it. So this would look at um, 
increasing the ceiling, uh, you know, for how many years you would have a prison sentence. So it would go from one to two years. Those could then, if you had a two-year prison sentence, that could become spent at some point um, and three years for uh, or more for community sanctions. But the other point is that it wouldn't look at multiple offences. It wouldn't be that side of things. It would look at how long it's been since you committed an offence. So exactly what Damien was saying there, you know, like he hasn't, you know, he, he committed his offence in 2005. You're talking about 2009, coming out, serving your sentence. And part of the reason why we called our research the secondary punishment was that people thought they had served their punishment, they'd served their sentence. They come out and it follows them. And w- one person in the research talked about how they committed their offence three decades ago, 30 years ago, and it still fe- fills them with fear going for a job interview or applying for a job because it has followed them there because there are certain convictions that will never become spent. And, you know, uh, but for those minor or less serious offences, you know, we have to give people the possibility to be able to move on with their lives. So this legislation if it came into place, we still think it could go further, but we think it would be a good starting point and we think it should be expedited as soon as possible. And why, in your opinion, Sersha, as you say in 2018, OK, government files were here, we're discovering since March 2020, we're heading for four years at least. Why, in your opinion, is it not done? Is it just basically because it's not something that's given priority on the basis of there's no political drive for it? I think the justice brief is obviously really wide and there is a lot happening with it. So, you know, there have been there have been some progressive pieces published. So government policy is actually, if you look on paper, it's actually quite progressive at the moment around penal reform and issues relating to this. But it's the implementation piece. So it's there's a bottleneck with the number of bills that are coming through from the Department of Justice on particular issues. But we do need to see the political will to get some of these things done. Like this one is nearly there. It's so very nearly there. And the government, um, and I would have met with Minister McEntee a a couple of years ago on this. And, you know, she did indicate and she has publicly indicated that with some minor amendments, they would be willing to support this legislation. So we think it's one that could be done quite easily. It's really finding dull time to do it. That's where it's at because it has passed uh, in the Shannon. So we need um, time in the doll to discuss it and, and uh, you know, in, like enact it, basically. One other thing, and maybe I'm totally off beam here, but it just occurs to me, the whole issue of recidivism. If you have an environment after somebody finishes their sentence, whereby it's going to be some way possible and that there is some passage and that there's some... Um, things opening up for you to begin a new life, surely one would have thought that recidivism, which forever in some section society people go on about, that you would impact on relatively high levels of that. Yeah, and we know what we know what helps people stop reoffending. Um we know that it's having a roof over their head, some security, some stability. Um, you know, we often talk about people going into prison on short term sentences and, uh, you know, really should that happen? Because we know that if people are happen to be in employment, um, but would lose their jobs if they went into prison for three or four months or six months, then that would have an impact on them. It could impact on their accommodation and housing, their relationships with their family. Those are key as well. So we should be doing everything possible, including putting proper policies in place. 
um, to encourage and support employers to employ people with a history of convictions um, to ensure that people can move on with their lives and that they don't have to. Because very often it is, you know, where somebody comes out, they try their best and they're not getting anywhere. They'll, You know, Damien's discussed it there and it certainly come out in the research. Th- those kind of levels of hopelessness and despair, you know, you have to give people hope and you have to do that with the supports put in place to help them move forward, you know. And I think that's really what we need to see happen here, you know, in, in the reports that some of the recommendations we would have called for are ring fence funding for information campaigns around this. Uh, so people know, so people, whether they're employers, the general public or people with convictions themselves know when they have to disclose something or when they don't. We also want um, like the big thing that came out and this would have come out from employers and even from IBEC, who would have attended our launch last week. Employers want supports, not in terms of financial supports. They want an information line they can phone and just talk it through with somebody and make sure that they aren't going to put a foot wrong for either the person, the individual involved that they want to employ or other employees or the company as a whole. So, you know, that would be really pragmatic and helpful. And what was also encouraging was that the Department of Justice are currently working on a new employment strategy for people with experience of the criminal justice system. And we asked them to come to the launch and just give us an update on that. And, they, you know, they got a preview of the report and they were actually quite positive about it and said, you know, while we won't maybe agree on everything, a lot of what is in the report aligns with what they had been hoping to do anyway. So I think, you know, that that gives me some hope. Um, That's positive. And I think, you know, if we can see moves in that direction in terms of policy, in terms of Budget 2025, putting specific supports in place and seeing changes in the legislation. You know, the spent convictions or rehabilitative periods bill piece is one thing. But the other piece I would just mention is the equality legislation. There is a review of the equality legislation going on at the moment. And IRAC, the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, have also recommended, along with ourselves, that... Um, criminal conviction should be a protected ground under equality legislation so you couldn't discriminate uh, against somebody on that basis. One of the things they are also considering is um, discrimination on socioeconomic basis and Damien touched on it there. A lot of people who go to prison go there because they can't make ends meet because of their circumstances, because of where they've come and they've never had a chance. We know literacy rates um, in prison are an issue the average age of school uh, finishing is 14. So, you know, those bigger societal issues are something we have to address as well if we really want to engage with this issue properly. Oh, absolutely. Sure. John Lonergan, the former governor of Mount Joy, was famous for, for saying uh, the, 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 the postcodes where the vast majority of people who were in that prison came from, it was all the most socio those most disadvantaged socioeconomically. And the notion that, for example, <laughs> people who are from a, a better off background have more moral backbone or anything is for the birds. Like, so, I mean, I think that's obvious. The other obvious thing, too, of course, Saoirse, is, as you say, the department... Uh, accept all of this makes perfect sense because it's so obvious but the big issue of course is the drive to implement it and and, and that's the thing we'd have to hope that might improve. Damien um, if I could just come to you again Spera Nua I hope I'm pronouncing it properly my old Gaelga isn't the best in the world tell me about how it came about and what exactly you do. Yeah so Spera Nua is the Irish for New Horizon 
and um, it was a college project uh, around the whole area of disclosure. So when I was studying my master's, I came across a process called recognition of prior learning. And when I seen that educational model, I thought, why are we not using this for disclosure? So in recognition of prior learning, if you have experiential learning, say in the workplace, you can get that assessed against the outcomes of talk courses. So you provide your evidence of learning and then that is assessed against the outcomes of, say, different courses or whatever. And if the learning matches the outcomes, it's just validated and certified. I've seen people come from, say, a, a leaving cert and going straight on to a level eight because they can prove that they've got business acumen, for example. So when I seen that, why are we not doing something like this around disclosure? So people take certain steps out of a life of crime. Do you know they engage with different services? They work on themselves. They become clean and free of substances and all them types of things. They get high levels of educational attainment. Do you know they've done a lot of reflective work on themselves, that type of thing. And all of that stuff we kind of collate in a, uh, it's a, a portfolio of commitment to change. And then we hand that over then to be assessed. So peer mentors do the work on the portfolio, but the criminal justice sector assess. And if they're satisfied then that the benchmarks are met, then it's validated and certified right up to date. You know, we don't guarantee future behaviour because nobody can guarantee that, but we can say with certainty and back it up with evidence, prove that the person has done an awful lot of work on themselves and it has a value. Alongside that then, like uh, say for, from an employer's point of view, it, before they make the decision to get the guy or girl with the bad background CV and throw it in the bin, we're saying talk to us. Let's take a look at the whole person view. Let's take a look at where are they at today in life, do you know, and, and, and see what strengths they have that suit your organisation. So we're offering like due diligence to employers before they make them decisions just to ignore somebody based on a bit of their past that they will never be able to change. And it's actually quite empowering for the individual to kind of do their own strengths assessment, you know. It, give, it, puts, it fills you with a bit of a sense of pride and, and confidence and, 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 and yeah, it's, we're really enjoying doing what we do. And it, it has, something has to change because the current model is purely negative and it's deficit-based. And all it really does at the end of the day is picks holes in people that are trying to build themselves up and move on, like, you know. So this way flips the narrative, you know, from a place of positive, or from a place of negativity to a place of positivity. And, and, and you know, we're having some good success with getting people work and getting people moved on and long it will continue. Great stuff. I absolutely hope so, Damien. And I have to say, just in terms of yourself there and, and um, the Penal Reform Trust, I think it's vital work that's being done and it's work that does not get the recognition it properly deserves in society and what it's doing, particularly in the kind of times we live in, can only add to the benefit of society as a whole, not to mention individuals and I think that phrase second chance is absolutely key to the whole thing Damien Quinn and Saoirse Brady thank you both very much for joining us today thank you Michael also like to thank as always our engineer JJ Vernon thank you folks for listening we'll be back with you again stay well and we'll talk to you then
On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.